Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. Hi, everyone. This week on the podcast, I'm doing something a little different. As some of you might know, one of the big projects that I'm working on right now in my shop, Gist Yarn, is designing and manufacturing a new line of weaving yarn. It's going to be a gorgeous slub blend of cotton and linen, suitable for floor and rigid heddle loom weavers, and it's going to be grown and spun and dyed in the U.S. As you might imagine, I've been reaching out to lots of folks in the textile mill and manufacturing industries here in the U.S. as I've been working on getting this yarn line going, and I've been building relationships with the small businesses who are going to be helping me to bring this yarn into the world. And I decided I'm going to share some of these stories with you on the podcast as my journey continues, because I think it's so important and also fascinating to know about the people and communities behind the materials that we're working with at our looms. One of the companies I reached out to during this process is Claudia Reisler's business, Maine Dye and Textiles. Located in Saco, Maine, Maine Dye and Textiles dyes a wide range of yarn from gorgeous wools for Brooklyn Tweed and other knitting yarn companies to nylon yarns for more industrial purposes. Claudia does, in fact, happen to be a weaver herself, but the focus of this week's conversation isn't so much on weaving, but what it's like to run a custom dye house in the U.S. For me, it was a fascinating window into one critically important part of our textile manufacturing industry, and also a window into a woman-owned small business hustling hard to raise the capital and build the team to bring their vision into the world. So I hope you like listening to it, and let's dive into our conversation. Hi, Claudia. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. No problem, Sarah. Thank you for asking me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling me a little about your company, Maine Dye and Textile? Sure. Um, my, so my name is Claudia Raisler, um, and I've hung around in Maine uh, for about 30 years now. We moved here from, from, my husband and I moved here with our kids in 1989, and Basically, I've been involved primarily in a professional career and then more recently in the last six, six seven years in helping to run um, this textile dye house called the Dye House, Main Dye and Textiles. We started out first as Saco River Dye House, and then last year it was recommended that we kind of expand our name and try to get the word Maine into the, to the name of the business. And so... Don't do a name change. <laughs> it, it creates a lot of confusion in the market, would be my advice. The company itself has changed tremendously. We started out in, in 2012 buying some used equipment out of Massachusetts and set up a skein dyeing operation. And we were touching about 4,000 pounds a month or so of yarns, natural fiber yarns that got sold primarily into the textile artisan market, be it weaving or hand knitting or um, probably weaving and hand knitting were the most common end user uses for what we were dyeing. And it was skein dyeing only, meaning that we had to skein it up on a, re on a reeling and then put it into the dye tanks. And then since then, in 2016, we made some investments in different kind of equip dyeing equipment that allowed us to dye yarn on a cone. And that's called package dye. 
So we do both now, and we handle about 18 to 20 tons a month of material. So let's back up a little bit. I'd love to hear some more about your personal story. I think you purchased the Dye House in 2012. Is that right? We did. So that's we, like a, that's a bold move. Like what what made you decide that you wanted to own a dye house and dive into this? <laughs> I I would love to tell you that it was based on years and years of <laughs> analytical thinking and planning and and we had a perfect plan for executing this five year business plan or whatever. But it really arose because the dye house, which was part of another textile business in Massachusetts, was going to close. And there were a half a dozen of us or so who had small lines of yarn that they were trying to sell into the market. Other, The other customers were far bigger than we were, but we at the time were producing um, a line of alpaca yarn. And when the dye house closed, we didn't have anywhere to take our yarn to be dyed. So we called up and said, or we talked among us and said, gee, what would it look like to move a dye house to Maine? And that's really as complicated as it got. So we put all this equipment, uh, we didn't, but people loaded up 22 tractor, two tractor trailer loads of equipment and we drove it up and installed it in an old mill that had previously been a big textile operation in the 19, early 1900s. Um, so it was really because we had a little bit of product and we thought it made sense to have a business opportunity to build a dye house in Maine. And what were those first few months like when the equipment arrived? You know, that actually has turned out to be the simple part. Mm. <laughs> we, we were really, really fortunate because the dye master who had been with the dye house in Massachusetts for, for years, probably, I, I'm going to guess 20 years, maybe even longer, He'd been hired, he was a Canadian dyer, and he'd been hired years ago to move the dye house from New York to, to Massachusetts, and then he just stayed with it. So he came up um, He came up in the beginning and worked with us for about a year, six months, to till we hired our first dye master full-time. He, he then retired and went to play golf in Florida, which is, is um, probably what we all should be doing at this point. <laughs> but anyway... So the first few months were not that hard. In the other, once we got the equipment up and running, he was running programs that he had done for a long time. So it, that part of it wasn't too difficult, and we had a book of clients or customers that were just waiting for the doors to to open up again. And so, what were the things that were challenging, if if not that? Um, I, I think in looking back on it, the things that were challenging then and have continued to be challenging now because of the increased complexity of what we're doing is not having we my husband and I who who basically have been the core management team for a long time not having a textile um, manufacturing background that you know we we had very different careers and we brought a lot of skill sets to the dye house from that perspective, be it understanding, you know, the business relationships, strategic planning, you know, how to set the course for something like this. But the day in and day out concepts of 
taking a product in, moving it out the door, understanding that it's basically volume, it's basically pricing, and it's basically, you know, work, work, making people work in a very, very targeted way. Those are not processes that we had had experience managing. So I do think manufacturing and having not having a strong manufacturing background at a practical level has been challenging. And then I think whenever anybody buys a business, the better that you know that business, uh, the stronger partner you can be. And we didn't have a a dye background. You know, we weren't dyers by background. So, so those have been the challenging things. Hmm. Understand, understanding how to run a manufacturing process and getting the right people lined up to do that and then understanding just the basics of dyeing. Um, but we're getting there slowly but surely. Yeah. So you mentioned when you when you first bought the business, you had a book of clients, and I'm sure you've grown in many ways since then. What are the range of different kinds of companies that you dye for and the different kinds of yarn that you dye? So in the beginning, we dyed. You, you can actually think of this, of the dye house now. Number one, I'll, I'll say it's a commissioned dye house, and that's a somewhat unique animal in and of itself. The way that most dye houses, not all of them, but work is that, you have a company, and maybe it's a big rug company, or it's a, well, or it's a, it's a, a cordage company of some kind, and makes nylon products. Usually, the dye house parting or the dyeing is is an integral part of a bigger picture. So you're making an end product. A step along the way is that it needs dye, and you have a small dye house operation that goes with that. A commission. In our case, we. We don't have that. Uh, what we have is you, Sarah, call up and say, I have a thousand pounds of wool and I want to dye it into this lovely color for weaving. And so the materials change all the time because we're a commission dye house. We dye what people bring to us. Um, and when I mentioned the, the complexity or the part to manage that's been difficult is understanding um, the dye process, it's even more understanding the dye programs depending on the various kinds of materials. So when you ask me what kinds of materials we touch, we touch all kinds of natural fibers now. Wool, alpaca, linen, um, not so much cotton um, for different reasons, but um, I'm trying to think, uh, we, we've dyed, we touch cashmere, we touch um, kiviat, we've, we've really touched almost the whole range of natural fibers. Then we dye with the, the new equipment that we purchased in 2016, we dye synthetic materials, which are typically you and I think of it as nylon and polyester or paraaramid fibers, which tend to be fire resistant um, or flame retardant type materials or yarns. And then we actually um, uh, touch well, those are the kinds of yarns that we touch primarily. And then we have our own line of yarn, just a wool line that we dye as well. So we, we, we cross the gamut, and I think understanding how to narrow that gamut somewhat so that you weren't trying to be all things to all people because each one requires a different dye program. So you call up different vendors and you get different kinds of dyes. That was, a, that was something we had, we've begun to focus on more like what kinds of things can we do given the equipment we have and do well. Um, 
so we so we do both protein and synthetic or natural fibers and synthetic fibers. What a day in the life or a week in the life would be like running your company. So as someone who is really always fascinated by textile manufacturing and things in this industry and also who runs a small business myself, I always love to know what people are doing day to day when they're running a company like this. What are you loving about it? And what is the hard parts about it these days? Do you want a job? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great question because part of running it is sort of probably the same experience that you have. You end up being a lot of different things. So you're probably, um, you're managing the customers, you're talking to people like Claudia and figuring out, you know, industry sector and podcasts and sort of the, the marketing and, and the educational part of your business. But you probably also do a lot of designing still, or at least work around the whole product itself, the art of weaving. Mm-hmm. And I bet you know how to do QuickBooks. Is oh, that I a, do. <laughs> is that a good guess? <laughs> sure. So you're your own accountant. So my life up until recently has been very much like that. Um, and you try to fill in the pieces of not uh, of figuring out what you can't do or what what's the hardest thing for you to do, and then offload that. But I can walk in the door, and it's very unpredictable at 8 a.m. in the morning, whether I'm going to be trying to figure out how the production should move through or should I be worrying about the bills that I didn't get out the door so that we can get, you know, the money in the door. Um, What I found in the last um, year, actually two years, is the volume has grown and the complexity of the kinds of materials we're touching has changed um, and the dye programs have changed is that you have to do what they say in, um, in a Six Sigma training. Um, you have to start unwinding what they call tribal knowledge. So I am now, and we are very, very um, focused on unwinding all that knowledge that's sitting in one or two people's head and making sure that we diversify our management team so that the die house, something like a die house that's doing you know 20 tons a month isn't just dependent on one or two people and and what they know about the business. So my days now are more about figuring out what can I do and do well and how do we staff and and build a management team that'll take this die house to the next level. Um, So I get to talk to Sarah's uh, Mm -hmm. now on podcasts and we're um, we're running a, a crowdfunding campaign that I think we're going to talk about a little later. Absolutely. And, yeah. um, so I think about that. Um, both Ken and I, uh, now we have a board of directors and we sit on that board. So we sit and talk about strategic planning and what new service we should think about. And then we figure out um, how to how to contribute to the parts of the business where we still don't maybe don't have it covered, you know, quite as well from an outside expertise perspective. So I don't touch I, I the first year I think I hung when you take yarn off of out of a dryer or an extractor skeined yarn, the first thing you have to do is hang it all on a big long stick 
to get it reacclimated to the to the environment and fully dried. So anybody that walks in the door, if Sarah were to walk in the door today and say, I want to learn about, you know, dyeing yarn and participating in this, you get to start at the very bottom level like we all have, which is hanging yarn. Uh, <laughs> and eventually you graduate from hanging yarn. And there's a couple of good videos now that are posted up on the web. Um to the next phase and learning the next very actually most critical thing, um, the different materials. Um, it, it'd be nice if there were, a, you know, a, a textile education program at the community college level and you could go hire six, you know, really, really bright people who have um, done textile and know yarn counts and base yarns and those kinds of things. But that isn't really the case right now because of the textile industry hasn't supported those kinds of educational programs for a long time in this country. And so you really have to train people from the ground up. What's a piece of wool? What's a piece of cotton? What's a synthetic material? You know, what's the yarn count? And so that's the other piece that I, that I spend part of my day doing now is, is helping train new people coming on staff that, that don't have any background in textiles. Your company is really committed to improving the water conservation and reducing toxic dyes in your dye house. And I'm wondering if you could tell me why that's so important to you and also practically how you go about achieving those goals. So another great question, because if you look at the literature um, and you can Google textile manufacturing environment and what you're going to get is a great article out of of publications like The Guardian. It's, it's a great publication out of, of England that writes a lot about textile manufacturing, plus any of the other organizations that think about textile manufacturing. And unfortunately, textiles and the making of processing of textiles is still one of the world's largest single polluters. Um, and when I say pollution, it's not so much that we're putting bad yucky dyes with with metals and chromium into the water because that part has been pretty well addressed and actually been well addressed over the years uh, there's still some of that uh, depending on the amount of regulations that a particular country has but we are also the world's one of the world's largest consumers of water in relation to a manufacturing process so it's really about the volume of water consumed and discharged. And in second footnote is still monitoring what goes into that water as it's discharged. So the first step in running a dye house, when you asked me about what we're doing about it, is to figure out the machinery that can allow you to dye with less impact from an environmental perspective just in water consumption. The best conversation, uh, but not well implemented yet in, you know, across the board in manufacturing is what they call waterless dyeing. And that's actually, um, there've been some companies at the forefront of that, like Nike, I think, who in Europe have equipment that's been installed, new state-of-the-art stuff uh, on a bigger level that will do waterless dyeing. And it's a completely different process to get color into material. And we all need color. Um, that's the bottom line here. The second 
step that you can take though and and again it's expensive technology not available across you know across all platforms and isn't something that you're going to do unless you really have uh, a big big program where like a nike or something like that um so the next thing is is to look at your equipment and how much water it uses for the dye process itself so when we bought this i'll call it romantic equipment out of Massachusetts um, there are, again there's some great pictures on the on the web and, and to look at and there's a video of a couple of videos of the old equipment it's big tanks and they range from dying 20 pounds at a time clear up to about um, uh, 400 pounds at a time a little under 400 pounds but they're big steel tanks that you you put the material in, you put a lid on it, and then you run the water and the, the dyes through it and, and some heat, which are basically the elements you need for dyeing. And that equipment, which came out of New York in the 30s and was built primarily as a wool dyeing operation, uses 40 gallons of water for every pound that we dye. The new equipment that dyes in cone form in the package dye side of what we call the package dye side of our operation uses four gallons of water for every pound dyed. So the next big agenda item and actually one of the reasons for I'll call it going to market um, uh, uh, for additional capital investment is to replace the skein dyeing operation with a new piece of equipment that gets what they call the liquor ratio, i.e. the amount of water to the amount of dye down to four, four to six gallons per pound as opposed to 40. Um, so that's the step number two. And when you, funny enough, um, unless you are a company that's put money into, and there aren't very many yet, um, into new equipment, most of the dyeing operations in the United States are still operating with old, old equipment that chews up a lot of water. Um, we had a, a large publicly traded company come and visit last month from the south and they are, for the most part, most of their dye equipment um, is still using equipment that's 30 or 40 years old and they just don't have the technology in that equipment to reduce the water impact. So. We have the luxury of number one, having one machine already that we went out and bought in 2016 that does that on the one side. We want to we want to replicate that on the skein dyeing side uh, of the business as well. And then we are, we're fortunate enough that we also are sitting in an area of the country in our state that qualifies us to be what they call a USDA approved rural energy district. So we get to talk to the to the feds and to the USDA about rural energy programs and expenditures in to make better environmental improvements on the on energy consumption. And so that was one of the resources that, that was helpful for us from a financial perspective when we were buying the package dye machine is that they gave us some grant money for part of the expenditures associated with that machine. So, you know, Sarah, I think it's a really complicated question about the environment because if you asked me 
can you just wave a magic wand and cure water consumption and dying? You can't yet. You know, it requires capital. It requires people thinking about the kinds of materials are dying and then thinking about, um, you know, the actual dive, you know, how you manage your dive program so that you use the least amount of water possible. Um, putting in a recovery system, that's another thing that is one of the things that we want to do that we haven't done is that there's some water recovery systems which allows you to use the same water over again a couple, three times. Um, in certain situations. But we want to be a voice. We, we want to be part of that. We want to build, you know, in 30 years, a, a dying operation where people can look back and say, you know, they did that responsibly. They didn't, they, they cared about the things that mattered. And as they, they've spent their money and built the die house, these are the things that they, they valued. So we hope to keep that conversation going, um, and whether you call it environmental, sustainability, or whatever, um, there's a lot of ways to to come at the problem. But basically, it's it's about the equipment and the process. Are you finding that your big customers and other folks that you're working with in the industry are are excited to come along with you on that and and have you lead the industry forward? Um. Uh, again, another really good question. It, 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 that is driven a lot by pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, we serve, uh, by comparison, if you were to go buy textiles out of Vietnam now, or, or you know, if, if that's the, the textile manufacturing source that you use, or you wanted to even buy yarns for weaving, and you decided that, um, you know, price was the most important thing because that's what you needed in order to get that rug out at a price point that the end consumer will buy it at. Um, Because textile manufacturing is pretty challenged in this country uh, outside of a niche, you know, niche products, your goods, your yarn goods are probably going to come out of Central America or South America, um, because your vendor, uh, who's doing any volume, is going to be able to to acquire that that skein of yarn for, let's just say, two fifty a skein. In here, in this country, it would probably cost you closer to four dollars to produce that same skein. So the ability to pick up an environmental discussion, which does increase your operational costs some, if it's if for no other reason, new equipment, is really very market driven, and and that's the kinds of conversations that I hear out of other industry partners. I would love to do it, but I can't because I can't get my product out the door at a competitive price. Um, I would love to do it. I can because, you know, a high-end knitting yarn that sells at $18 a hank or skein, you know, probably has some room in there to to think about dedicating a portion of their their business program to the environment. Um, and along with that comes the benefit of then saying, 
I really, really want to be a valuable contributor, not only in the environmental section, but in the domestic production section. One of our really good partners, um, customers, that's what they're all about. They're all about domestic sourcing. Uh, they're a big yarn company, but they started from the get-go of saying, I'm going to source domestically, and yes, I care about the environment, and I'm going to care about you know, how I get my raw materials and who's going to be my, you know, who are my critical vendors. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to say it depends. If you have the luxury of enough margin in your part, in your marketing, uh, then that's the kind of partners that are able to also pick up the theme. They all care. It's just, is there enough money at the end of the day to spread around to make it worthwhile. And unfortunately, the other piece of it is, you know, even though an end consumer says that they care, it you have to say, are they going to take 15% more out of their pocket to pay for that hank of yarn? Um, because there's some kind of an environmental theme to it, or domestic theme to it, as opposed to the same identical yarn in the same color um, that doesn't carry that message. You would actually know the answer maybe better to that than I do, because you you market yarn, right? You s- yeah, I do. And I think it, it's a really good segue in what I wanted to ask you next, because what I am hearing over and over, and I think from a growing body of customers, is that people are really hungering to be part of textile communities that are... Um, that are on the forefront of pushing forward environmental sustainability issues and that are working to rebuild the textile industry in this country. And I'm so heartened by how many people reach out to me and say that they will pay more for that and that they want to they wanna understand how to think carefully about the kind of materials that they use. I think weavers and, and you know people who are crafting in general, we spend so much time making something with the yarn that we make. And I think it really means a lot to a lot of people that are able to afford a little bit more to ha- to know exactly where that, that material is coming from and to know that what they're creating is, is part of those stories. So yeah, I, I hear that a lot, at least in the, in the maker community. And I understand that there really, there can be more opportunities for margin there than in more industrial things. So I think, I think there's exciting opportunities and you are, um, you're opening up right now to an equity crowdfunding campaign, looking for people in the community to help you make that possible. Can you can you tell me more about that? Well, I want to go back and I'm going to comment in this conversation about what you just said. Yeah. Um, I think the strength of the maker community is incredible because you guys, when I say you guys, that's because I'm this closet knitter weaver who, <laughs> who has never gotten a project across the finish line. So, so I'll, I'll call you you guys out there. I, I, I would be remiss to say I even could. I, I, I've woven some placemats. That's and a, and a couple of rugs. So that's as close as I've gotten so far. But anyway. If it's all driven by market demand in in many ways, and the maker community has been, in many ways, the strongest voice out there, more so because they, I guess, they can in number in a in a in one way, but number two, I think you do understand it at an emotional level that a big company that is just turning out, cranking out 
you know, yarn, hank after hank after yarn, and maybe even putting it into clothing and textiles that, you know, you're going to go out and buy and dispose of in, you know, a year or so, they probably don't get it, the theme quite as much. Uh, I mean, you touch it, you know, if the yarn, if the dye comes off on your hand, you, you care about whether there's a chemical in there that, that, you know, might transfer. So, so you're a fabulous voice for that part of it. And then I think the other encouraging thing to what you said is, is hearing up more of a theme is that it, one of our, because we're certified by the, under the Global Organic Textile Standards, GOTS certification, when I talked to the woman who runs the fiber program on the GOTS side, um, they're the certifying agency for, for um, um, edible food. They started out in food, but they sit in, in Oregon, and what they do is they'll send an inspector out and, and look at your facility and say, yes, you're doing it correct. You're following all these standards that you have to in order to be organically certified under the GOTS standards, which is an international standard. We've been GOTS certified from the get-go, and if you'd asked me what percent of our business that represented, it was probably less than 1%, but we went ahead and did it in the beginning. And certainly that book of business didn't really grow very much at all. Um, and we are the only GOTS certified yarn dyeing. There's some textile dyeing operations, but we're the only yarn dyeing one in the country. So if it was going to grow, we were going to see it. Um, and that didn't really happen. But now we have a customer that we've been, that's got certified. And this is the fastest, and she's been our customer for three or four years now. And the GOTS yarns that she does, she does both, got certified and non-certified. But that's the fastest growing segment of her business right now. And when I talked to Angela, who runs the fiber side of the certification program under uh, Oregon Tilth, um, she said that last year they had 20 or so, two years ago, 20 or so got certified textile type people. They have 80 now. Hmm. The number the number of applications that have gone up has gone way up by companies coming in and saying, okay, I want to play in the got sandbox, so I got to get certified and I'm willing to spend the money to do that. Um, so I think you're right. I, I, I do think it's slowly but surely creeping its way in. Um, okay, so I lost track of your question, though, in thinking about what you said. Yeah, so I wanted to know about your equity crowdfunding campaign that's going oh, on right now. Okay, so some people told me, <laughs> you asked me what the hardest part of, or some of the harder parts of, and I kind of veered off and saying, you know, it's hard to run a manufacturing operation if you haven't done that. Um, you know, I'm not good at telling people they have to stand at a table and twist a thousand skeins a day and otherwise they don't have a job or, you know, that. So that was hard for me to learn, uh, the discipline of that. But the other thing is learning how to finance a business that is not making the newest, greatest widget. Um, you know, you can go to Kickstarter, and we did in year one uh, or year two, and, and had some success around that. Um but you do the best on non-equity, what they call non-equity crowdfunding programs when you're making the very best, you know, wallet or keychain or whatever that nobody else has and 
Sarah goes on and sees it and says, I want one of those. Yes, I will support your startup. Uh, it's a little harder to <laughs> energize that discussion around textile manufacturing. But equity crowdfunding is a fabulous choice because the voice is about the crowd. Um, it lets people who are not, you know, venture capitalists who care, who have to care the most about return on investment, participate in an opportunity where they're going to see slow growth, but they get to support a story that they believe in, um, like ethical and sustainable textile manufacturing, and they get a piece of the, the business. And, you know, they may not be chairman of the board. They're not investing enough to be chairman of the board and sit in a boardroom, but they get to go to the next, you know, school function or whatever and say, you know, I happen to own a small interest. They don't have to say how much. In a textile operation that cares a lot about um, how we make our textiles and here's the story. So that's why we chose equity crowdfunding um, because we a lot of what we have to say is about the story. Um, nobody else has tied in um, the e-textile newsletter guy who who's helping me with the first person he, he calls it a first person blog that I have to write said nobody's tied crowdfunding to textile manufacturing to invest USA like we're trying to do so that's why we picked equity crowdfunding uh, we wanted to give people a chance to participate with an investment we knew that it would be hard to get venture capital to come in and say, yeah, I want to dump a bunch of money in here so you can go out and buy a new Hank dyeing machine or skein dyeing machine. Um, so we're going to, so that's why we've given a run at it. And, you know, we're, a, when you do equity crowdfunding, you set a range. Um, you say, like in our case, we said, we need to get $30,000 in the door just to make it worth the while to have a conversation so that we can have some kind of a meaningful impact or start spending the money in the correct way. It, it didn't really make sense to go out and say, give us a couple hundred dollars. And then we set a range up to a hundred thousand um, dollars for this first pass. And that will allow us to spend the money the way it's described on our, on the platform. And it's all in that, um, in diehousebuildout.com the whole business plan and everything else. So, so it, it, again, it's a chance for the crowd to participate. It's about the story uh, and the project that we're trying to do. And it's not something where, or it, it's, a, it's a venue where we understood that people want to be part of a story but are not thinking that they're going to become a millionaire overnight off of their little investment in, in a dye house sitting in Maine. Mm -hmm. I do wish I was the beer industry, though, because <laughs> the best crowdfunding uh, for building out uh, an industry sector is in craft beer. There's mm. this fabulous, what, one of the uh, uh, international craft beer companies that wanted to expand into the U.S. did an equity crowdfunding a couple years, started a couple years ago with it, and they've raised $7 million dollars. So I don't know what that has to say about consumers, beer, and yarns. But <laughs> Come on, yarn people, let's get out of the I know. <laughs> so I, I guess I need to come up with better perks. That's probably part of it. So Because I don't have craft beer to give away to people. 
So I imagine people, there's some people who are listening who are intrigued by this idea and want to figure out how to support you and also have never invested in a company, don't really know what that looks like. And a couple of questions that I could imagine people might have who are listening is, first of all, like, what's the lowest amount that you can give that would be useful to you? And also, if you're a small investor in a company like this, do you have any personal financial liability or risk if you own part of a company like this? So the, the second question is easy. You have no personal liability. Um, the, the only liability or the risk that you have is that your minimum investment, uh, which we structured, if you, again, I, I because it's a securities offering, I have to be a little careful. I, it's funny, the SEC rules say if you're going to do an offering like this, you got to be sure that everybody who wants to the public at large all knows what the story is. but mm. So I can talk about the terms of the offering. Mm -hmm. um, and so the minimum investment that we set up is $200. So you go on diehousebuildout.com and you see a little green button there and you click that green button and for 200 bucks you get a share of, of you get a neck, you get a, a piece of non-voting stock. Um, there's no liability as far as if we were to, you know, do something bad and pollute the environment or whatever, they don't get to come back to the shareholders and say, you know, you've got to help write a ticket to correct this problem. So that that basically uh, is not an issue. The, the biggest risk is that, like investing in anything, you know, that you're not going to get your $200 or the return. The way we have it restructured is that, there's a return on that investment that's going to start paying off over time. Um, so I, I, and then the only other thing that people probably should think about it as far as do I invest and what does that mean to me as an individual is that it's like buying a piece of uh, stock in, you know, Ford Motor Company. You, you don't really, you, you buy it in that case as a, as an investment because you think it's a good stock that you're going to, you know, eventually make money off of. I think the difference in equity crowdfunding is it does give people a chance to start thinking about being part of the story. So for example, we're going to create, as did the beer people, you, you create a page on the website that's a forum for interacting with the company that you've invested in. And, and if the equity crowdfunding is successful, um, that's a, a step on the website that we're going to take is create a forum page. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, that, that the crowd, the equity crowd is going to, you know, set the strategic direction for the next 10 years, but certainly in being ethically or being responsible to our investors, it will give us a chance to hear what people have to say in a little more organized way. And a real concrete example of that, I think, Sarah, is, you know, should a business like us focus more on skein dyeing or should we be taking it in a different direction? Or, you know, as you look at the various opportunities, we hope that people will use the form for an exchange like this to have a conversation. Well, I'm going to link to your crowdfunding page and also your website on the show notes to this episode so that people can really easily click over to that and find more and learn more. 
And I really hope that this crowdfunding campaign is, is really successful for you. I know after this conversation, I'm going to go over and make my little investment. And I, I, hope that, I hope that our community really rallies around you. I'm so inspired and excited about the, the good work that you and your team do. So thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And I, and I would say, let's just say it, it doesn't go anywhere. And, 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 you know, we didn't hit the right buttons at the right time or the right messaging for people to trigger enough interest. Um, if nothing else, it's really made us as a, as a business sit down and think about the story, where should we go, and, and how to do better messaging. Um, one of the things they say is that when you do a social media plan uh, around a, any kind of a crowdfunding, if you do it correctly, number one, it makes you sit down and think about what you're all about, and, and that's very true, um, so that you can tell the story better and understand what you are committing to. But number two, it also completely changes from old marketing principles, you know, where you're trying to describe a product, sell it to a consumer or whatever, to be much more of a of a conversation, whether it's through Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, what am I forgetting? LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Twitter, Instagram. Instagram. Uh, that's where the makers are. That, that's where the makers are. <laughs> so it, it changes dramatically your whole approach to how you go about describing who you are and what you are. Um, so we've learned a lot. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing the story, Claudia. I appreciate You're more it. than welcome. Thanks for letting me have the opportunity. Yeah, of course. And, and I promise I'm going to learn to weave. Someday you're going to have me I on the podcast. I think you already know how to weave. You, when I was talking to you about yarn, you seem to get it. Yeah, well, someday I'm going to be on your podcast about the product I've made as opposed to a, a financing right. strategy. So, okay, I'm okay? going to hold you to it. All right. Thanks a lot, Take Sarah. Thank you. Uh-huh. That's a wrap. To see photos of their gorgeous dye house, as well as to find links to the main dye and textile website, social media, and crowdfunding investment campaign, you can visit my show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 26. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N.com. I hope you will join me in becoming an investor in their important work if it's something that you can afford right now. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Irene Schmaller, the founder and owner of Cotton Clouds. Cotton Clouds is a much beloved cotton yarn supplier for weavers, and many of you are probably well aware of Irene and of her yarn. It's a fun conversation about all things cotton, so make sure to tune in next Monday. And until next time, happy weaving! Mm-hmm.